We're in Revelation chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 6 this morning as we look at the city of Sardis and the message to that city. I wanted to uh, acquaint you just uh, briefly, visually, with this uh, city, and we'll try to get to that. While we're uh, waiting on that, let me uh, read the scripture this morning. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God or in the judgment of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names or a few notables in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's in a name? Does that ring a bell from Romeo and Juliet? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. The issue for Romeo and Juliet, as she made clear in Act 2, Scene 2, is that your name is my enemy. And you know about the feud between the families. And he was nothing like what she expected, and she was nothing like what he expected from the name alone. It was the name that branded them as enemies, but not the reality of who they were. Okay, I got that. Reputation is what men and women think of us, said Thomas Paine. Character is what God and angels know of us. Sardis has a reputation, and the word reputation, if that's the way it's translated in your translation, is the very word that we would normally translate name. Four times in these uh, six verses, in verse 1, verse 4, and twice in verse 5, we have the word name, onoma. And yet, 
it slides in different directions because even as I mentioned, uh, you have a few names. Some translations just say people because certainly the word name there is referring to the people, the few of that church. And yet it does carry the, the notion that they're notable for something. And the point is, they're notable because their garments aren't soiled. So in this passage, six verses, four times the word name occurs. And that's significant. It doesn't occur like that in the other messages. And that's because, indeed, Sardis has a reputation. And Jesus' message targets that reputation. It's what's in view. You have a reputation for being alive. It's just the word for living. But again, living almost has the notion here of thriving in contrast when Jesus lowers the boom and says, but actually, you're dead. You're a has-been. Thyatira, as we saw last week, was growing. Jesus pointed out that they, the good that they were doing was getting better, that they were growing. Love, service, faithfulness, steadfast endurance. These are the things that he praised. And he did this under complicated and complicating circumstances that they themselves were facing and suffering, those of hardship and the tempting voice of compromise in the teaching of Jezebel. But Sardis looks healthy on the outside. There's no complaint, but you know what? There's no praise. What's not said is glaring because what's not said is what can't be said. And there's just way too much that can't be said about Sardis. It's like, where do we begin? Sardis looks healthy on the outside, but there's a life-taking cancer on the inside. And this isn't a physical health issue. It's a spiritual one. This, uh, what I call the cancer, is marked by inertia. It's going nowhere. And it's going nowhere fast. All the while, it's remaining unchanged. It's influenced by leisure and luxury. And yet, it's aimless and purposeless. And by the way, uh, you know, Shelley and I enjoyed two weeks of vacation. Uh, we had never done that. You know, it was like that extra day. That, uh, and then we had our travel days on the ends. And we saved. And it, every day of it was wonderful. But I couldn't live like that. People say, I bet you didn't want to come back. Well, I could have probably squeezed in another day. That's true. But I could, I could understand, and I'll bet you've experienced this too, and we need to remember, we need to appreciate these feelings. 
because they're a source of wisdom. I could not live like that all the time. I need a higher purpose in my life. I need meaning in my life. In fact, true happiness and behavioral psychological studies are bearing this out, by the way, if that adds any credence to what I'm saying, but just take it from from me. What really brings happiness, contentment, a sense of well-being, a sound night of sleep is meaning in your life. Responsibility toward that meaning. Shepherding that meaning, the people in your life. Making more of it. That's a part of being grateful and appreciation. It's a part of really living. This is not rocket science. This is just understanding. Often what we already have, instead of looking for something that isn't already in our hand, or looking back on something that's no longer in our hand. As I said, it's a, not a physical health issue, it's a spiritual one, marked by inertia, influenced by leisure and luxury, and promoted, thirdly, by the culture, which says, you know what, it's all about the happy life. It's all about you. And the reality of this kind of thinking can be seen only over time. How many of you have been to a high school reunion? Yeah, that's a good indicator, isn't it, of those who are moving and growing and those who seem stuck or are going backward. In fact, we take inventory of ourselves. It becomes kind of a checkpoint. I've only been to, to two of them, my fifth and my 15th. Both were depressing. My 15th was just a year ago. (laughs) How about family reunions? We have a family reunion every year, and yet even within a year, I can see change and growth and difference. These are just a few of the ways that we can mark what's happening in our lives. It's a certain uh, theory of relativity. How many of you have a four-year degree? Can I see your hands? Quite a few of you. How has it helped you? What did you do with it this last week? Did it help you read a book? Maybe a book that stretched you. In other words, you know, What if I told you that I exercised every day from the age of 16 to 20, but I'm complaining that my abs today aren't what they used to be? (laughs) We've got to be growing. But to be growing, we've got to draw a line and step over it and say, one day at a time. Every day is important. I read something this week about Bear Bryant, who was the storied coach 
of Alabama for so many years, and their record was just incredible during the span. And I can remember um, watching Alabama during those years. But he drilled it into his team that we don't get up just for the big game because every game is a big game. Every play is a big play. If you live your life like that, instead of looking back on the last game or the next game, and you hear this all the time in athletics, maybe you do, I do, and it's a groan. Uh, what do you, you know, now that you've won this game and you're in the playoffs, are you thinking about that big team that's down the road? No, we're thinking about next game, the next game. Ugh, groan. Writers don't want to talk about that game. They want to talk about their, their notion of the big game. But you don't get to the big game unless you play each play and each game as though it's a big game. We don't want our best days to be yesterdays, memories that read like a fairy tale once upon a time. These are the good old days. If you live each day in the Lord, in the Spirit, realizing that you have meaning in your life because of the purpose that Christ gives to you. You are a new creation in Christ. The old things are past. Behold, behold, all things are new. That's an incredible claim. Let it get a hold of you. Let it grab your heart. That's essentially the dynamic and the issue here with the church of Sardis. Get up, get going, get growing, or start growing. I'm going to skip a little of this. I, I did want to show you this, this map because it, it gives you a sense of what's behind the city of Sardis. You see that brown mountain range. I want to show you an illustration of Sardis. You'll notice in, in this depiction, which is pretty good. The city is lying before the mountain, the citadel. If you look closely on that hill as the gates, the large walled gates of the city uh, that work their way back to that citadel, that citadel was considered in antiquity impregnable. And the city lay before it, and it itself would, it would be a conquest because of the great walls that surround it. Here's a recent or contemporary picture of one part of that mountain range. The angle at it is from the ruins of the temple uh, to Artemis but, or Diana, but it, you can even see a part of a Byzantine 
citadel that was rebuilt on that mountain. But I wanted to give you some kind of a visual orientation to that citadel and how the city sat in relation to it because it, it, it has a storied history. Uh, and I'll bring that up as we go just a little bit. What's not included in this letter, as I said, is instructive. There's no hint of hardship or persecution, no hint of trouble with the community, the, the surrounding community, the pagan community, if you will. Um, no problem with the Jewish population, no hint of threat due to false teaching within or without. It appears to be an affluent church, cozy with an affluent society. And there's nothing to praise, there's everything to warn, and there are only a few notables with clean garments by exception. Sardis was a city as I mentioned, with a great past, and that's the problem. Sardis is yesterday. Like each of the letters of the churches of these notable cities in Asia Minor, what are mysteries of wording to us are winks and gestures to the first readers. Like, for example, I lived in San Francisco. If San Francisco was in ruins, and I can kind of visualize that, and there was a message written from Jesus to the church in San Francisco, we might get it today when he says, open your golden gate, or threatening to make you quake, or I'll blow out your candlestick. All of those references, we would go, aha, 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 but for us, it's difficult when we're looking backward 2,000 years as we are. So I hope to bring a few of those winks and nods to your attention. The most important one is the first one. Wake up or watch. Both uh, translations refer to a word that occurs quite a bit in the New Testament asking and calling us to be alert, to be vigilant, to, to wake up and be on the alert. As I mentioned, it was an impregnable citadel. As long as the guards were at their posts, they were impregnable. But they began, I guess you could say they got smug. They got really comfortable. They became cozy. There's no threat. They can't reach us. They can't conquer us. The great King Croesus in 546 BC, Cyrus the Great, assaulted the city, surrounded it. One soldier asked permission to just make a venture, and he, he just spent a couple of days watching the upper wall of that citadel. And he saw a soldier on the wall drop his helmet, and he scrambled down part of the way, retrieved his helmet, and went up. And by that, that soldier 
was able to venture up and find a path and it was followed like ants by soldiers, but when they got to the top, nobody was watching the wall. If there had been, they would have been easily repelled. They didn't keep watch. They didn't think they needed to. In 213 BC, the king was Achaius, Antiochus the Great had the city surrounded. And just as Herodotus recorded the events of 546 BC, Polybius records them. In fact, he was very close and contemporary with those events. And I just wanted to give you a taste of the sense of how impregnable it was because when Achaius was captured and brought before uh, Antiochus the Great, this is, this is what Polybius records. As Achaius sat before him on the ground, bound hand and foot, he was dumbstruck. That is, Antiochus the Great, the king. And this was all done secretly. In other words, the armies, his army and that of Achaius, the Sardinian army, if you will, the Lydian army, had no idea that this had happened. They had secreted the king out of the citadel and now he was before Antiochus. And, and Polybius says, Antiochus was so dumbstruck with astonishment, the word is paradox in Greek, that for a long time he remained speechless. Try to imagine this now, this great king with this king bound hand and foot, and Antiochus is just speechless. He can't believe what he sees. And at last, he, he was so deeply affected, he burst into tears. Feeling this way, I suppose, says Polybius, because Achaius, the sovereign of all Asia, was actually sitting on the ground, bound hand and foot at the mercy of his captors in the middle of the night when everyone thought he was dwelling secure in the strongest fortress in the world. So Jesus says, you have a name. I know your name. You have a reputation for being alive, but actually you're dead. Uh, the Danish theologian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard felt that way about the Danish church in the 19th century. And he wrote about it. He was a constant, steady churchgoer. But he felt like the church of Denmark was, was dead or on life support. He wrote wonderful parables that he would insert into his writings. This one's called The Domestic Geese, and I've really pared it down. He, the flock gathered for church each Sunday and enjoyed with great interest the sermons, essentially the same, telling of the glorious destiny of geese, of their noble potential for which their maker created them, that geese were to use their wings to fly away to the distant pastures to which they really belonged. For they were only pilgrims 
on this earth. When a few actually took this seriously, the flock ridiculed them for going about thinking of flying and actually using their wings. You see, the geese that did looked ill and thin next to the flock that was quite plump. And the difference, said the flock, is that the few were not blessed by the grace of God as they were fat, plump, and delicious. Of course, at Christmas, they were delicious indeed. You see, Jesus says, you need to know to this church in verses 2 through 5, If you don't turn things around, you will be dead because you're dying, you're dirty, and you're done. And so he says, get up, you're dying. And it's interesting, in verse 2 he says, strengthen, develop what remains. Stop neglecting. And we saw the works, didn't we? We've heard the word works in every message in one fashion or another. And at their height in Thyatira, they're, they're all nailed there. Love, service, faithfulness, steadfastness. No mention of works here, but an illusion. Everything that you've started is unfinished. In fact, in 11 AD, while Jesus was walking the earth, There was a great earthquake in Sardis. The city was virtually destroyed. The emperor and many countries, many provinces poured out aid, just like America and other countries, for example, when there's a a great tragedy such as there have been in our world due to to great hurricanes uh, and natural disasters. And yet, even at the point of writing this, it's kind of a byword, you know? It's kind of a, a nudge, a, an elbow in the ribs. Your works are unfinished. You started, you got all this aid, but you aren't finished all these years later. Everybody else is supposed to do it, you see? We always have an excuse, and that's the death of growth. That's the death of progress. That's the death of openness to the work of God in our lives. That is a dying existence when our excuses cut off the very work of God. Powerfully, when Polybius finished this whole treatment on this period of what was going on in the province, in the area of Asia with the Lydians under Achaius and Antiochus the Great, he has two moral lessons that he closes with. The first, the, the second one is this: be prepared for anything. And he's writing, I mean, he's writing to people that he wants to teach from history 
how to live more wisely. What's his first moral lesson? Let me give it to you. In the moment of strength, I'm going to put it in a little different words, but it's the same message. In the moment of strength, make choices that will serve you well in the moment of weakness. Make your moral decisions in advance, not in the time of temptation. Not when it's too late. Make your resolves. Make commitments. Develop convictions. Things that will guide you in life. Not under the duress of calamity and tragedy and great difficulty when all we do is feel sad for ourselves. You know I'm preaching this message to myself. It's one that I uh, preach a lot to myself. It's interesting how Satan harasses all the other churches. There's no need to harass Sardis. That's a sad commentary. And so in verse 3, he says, Remember what you have received and heard. You're always looking back. You're always thinking about the past. You're always reveling in yesterday's glories. How about remembering this one? Remember what you've heard. The gospel, what was told to you, the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, keep it. That's how some translate it. You could also translate it, obey it. Or you could translate it, hold it fast. It's uh, the word tereo. Um, T-E-R-E-O. Long O. If you wanted to look that up. You know what it means? You know how the, the core notion of tereo is? Keep watch. Pay attention. Don't let down your guard. If somebody gave you a trust and said, manage it with this word, you would know they wanted you to attend business. Not not to be nodding off or sleeping or playing around or on your phone when the boss walks in. Not surfing the web when you're supposed to be doing work. This is stuff that that you really care about. That's what this word is talking about. It means, if you will, get busy. The boss is coming. Sardis is a church with a testimony that's years old. They need to wake up and get going. He says, you're dirty, verse 4. Clean up your act. You only have a few notables who are not soiled. For they have their garments still clean. This is later in, in verse 5, he's going to pick up some of these thoughts. And I, I labeled that start growing, but I'm going to treat it under his promise because he, he's basically saying, you've got to start working for something that isn't even on your radar, and that's 
the life that I offer you, it's not the life of this world. And for you, it's the life of a future that you have with me. And so he paints this picture of walking in white. And in antiquity, the pagans would never approach their gods or their gods' temples unless they were in white and they were clean. That was a great expression. And when I went to Israel, um, every synagogue has a mikveh, which is a bath. And, and it, mikvahs, it's not a mikvah, uh, it's, it's not like a trough. It always has running water, which they call living water. If you think about it, it generally I shower every day. Do you sh- I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, <laughs> but if you're not, but back then, some people outside of their hands wouldn't wash or shower or bathe in a week. But when they go to the synagogue or when they go to the temple or when they go to the holy place, they wash. In, in Israel, the mikvah was that cleansing experience. Just imagine how you associated being physically clean with entering the presence of God. We need to do that spiritually as well. We need to associate innocence and cleanness and purity with our God and that he is worthy But you see, when it talks about soiled garments, that's an indication that this church is indistinguishable from the culture. And that is a sad commentary. So, he says, I promise the overcomer spiritual conquest to the conqueror, victory in white. And notice... Here, the conqueror's name shall never, ever be erased. An orator, Diochrysostom, in his oration that we know was delivered just probably years, just a couple of years, three years, four, under the reign of Titus, if this letter was written under his brother who succeeded him, Domitian, in in the 90s, he says, in Athens, and he's speaking to the island of Rhodes, to their governing body, and Rhodes is right there. And to the Rhodians, he refers, let me just give you this a little bit. This is really interesting. In Athens, for instance, whenever any citizen has to suffer death at the hands, in other words, capital punishment for a crime, his name is erased. Before the punishment is carried out. One reason, he says, and he, by the way, he said this isn't just done in Athens. He says this is done in a lot of lawful nations. He says one reason is that he may no longer be considered a citizen when he undergoes such a punishment, but as far as that is possible, as having become an alien. Dio goes on to say that not the re- that's not the real pu- punishment. The, the real punishment is to be so eradicated, to be totally 
obliviated as to have never existed. You see, isn't it interesting? He says here, your name will not be erased. I didn't have time to... I mean, is everyone's name in the book of life? Probably not. So why does he put it in the negative? Because these people are all going to be unworthy. Our security in Christ is never intended to make us lazy. God will forgive me anyway. I prayed a prayer back on April 7th at 6 p.m. Asked Jesus into my life. Haven't lived for him since, but you know I'm secure in Christ. That's not the message I'm getting here. I'm not getting that message at all. I think many of you know I'm a lifelong Giants fan. Last night, <clears throat> and I enjoyed it very much via television, Barry Bonds had his number retired. He's the 12th Giant in their 138-year history to have his name and number retired to join that list of uh, uh, great players hailed by the team. Of course, uh, Willie Mays was to introduce him, and he broke out into an impassioned and impromptu uh, speech in which he talked about his relationship to Barry. He played with Barry's father, Bobby. I watched Barry Bonds, his entire career with the Giants, I saw his, I mean, with my own eyes, I was at spring training the very first year. He hit his very first home run in a Giant uniform. I saw it. On opening day that same season, I saw him hit his very first official game home run as a Giant. I followed his stats. Um, I have an autographed bat. But his name has been given an asterisk. His accomplishments have been given an asterisk because of allegations of steroid use. Willie Mee said, at the end of his speech, he said, I encourage you to put him in the Hall of Fame, speaking to the writers who, who vote on such things. I would agree with Willie, but I'm, I don't have a vote. But even if the writers listened to me and he was inducted to the Hall of Fame, there'll be an asterisk. I mention that because I realized in thinking about this 
my name is written in the book of life but there's an asterisk our names written in the book of life have an asterisk because maybe others are unaware but we are unaware that it's not by our own achievements that we're there we're too laden with sin cussedness meanness selfishness it's by Christ that our names are written but it's also by Christ that our lives are changed our hearts are changed our dispositions are changed that's what that spirits for that's how we grow that's why we get up we get going and we start growing we stand with me Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We do love you. We know we're imperfect and we're unworthy. But in your strength, unabashed, and maybe at times even embarrassed, we step out in your strength by faith to do the things that we know are beautiful in your eyes, for they are beautiful in our own. And it is those things that are sometimes hard but we want to be people of beautiful things in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we pray in your matchless name, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, God bless you.